0: John chapter 18 is where we're going to be. Let me tell you on the front end, uh, the next two weekends, because if you kind of, especially if you're this first time here, you're like, man, I heard you guys, uh, you know, whatever, heard the preacher cracks a lot of jokes. He almost fell off the stage last week. Whatever it is, you need to understand the next two weeks are going to be intense. Uh, Not a lot of jokes cracked. Um, As we're in this series of the Gospel of John, we've been going through it, and as we've, we've done this all summer long, we're now in that really the seminal moment in all of human history. And um, it seems like when you go through it, jokes seem inappropriate as you walk through it. It's kind of like I remember seeing an article, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal years ago, where it just it talked about uh, selfies at sacred places. And it was talking about how people would go to places like Auschwitz concentration camp and and take a little selfie of themselves, and it's like, hey, happy endings at Auschwitz. And you're like, man, how inappropriate is that? That's kind of what it feels like as I prepared this week and as we prepare the services. Next week at the conclusion, we will uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper at all the campuses and all the services. At the conclusion, the whole service will be revolved around that. And uh, it kind of comes to mind as when you think about the first time you jumped on Google Earth, when you jump on Google Earth, what do you see? You see the, you see the Earth, and, and it's a big panoramic view, and you're looking down on planet Earth, but then you type in an address, and then what does it do? It, it hones down on one specific area, one address, one place among the big, big picture, and the Bible does that in a similar way. It starts off, in the beginning, God created the whole cosmos, and then it walks through 66 books, and then what you see now is it all focuses in on really, you know, six hours. As a matter of fact, the Gospel of John starts off and then it goes for 13 chapters covering three and a half years, and then from chapter 14 to chapter 20, it covers one week, but then in chapters like 18 and 19 and 20, it's like one day, one day. And again, it is, it is the seminal moment in all, not just of the Bible, but all of human history. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. All of history, all of the Bible comes down to this one moment. Now, what you're gonna see is this text today is kind of the precursor for next week, but it touches on some massive questions that people have. Like how in the world is Jesus Christ, with all of this stuff out there, with the billions of people, with all the different worldviews, how in the world how in the world is Jesus Christ the only way? Or, or how do I know if Jesus is actually with me? When I'm going through hell on earth, how do I know that he's still a good God? You're gonna see that touched on a little bit as well today. And then why can't God just forgive people? I mean, I mean he's God, why can't he just forgive people and say all's fair in love and war? How can he can't do that? And we'll look at that as well. So here's the context. The context of John 18 is in less than 24 hours, Jesus Christ will be dead. He will be hung on a cross a naked between two thieves paying the sin debt of the world. Jesus knows that's going to happen. So the betrayal has happened, the teaching moment where he's taught his disciples from chapter 14 to chapter 17 in that upper room discourse, that's over. And now the hour in which he came for is upon him. Jerusalem is bursting with people because it is the celebration of Passover. Jesus is going to die during Passover as the Passover lamb. He has spent the last few hours pouring into the disciples. And then in chapter 18, verse one, here's how it goes. It says, when Jesus has spoken these words, these words are really chapter 17. Chapter 17 is called the high priestly prayer. We didn't do it in the Gospel of John series because last year, as we went through the year in the Bible, we spent a whole Sunday just on the high priestly prayer where he prays for the world, where he prays for his disciples, and believe it or not, he actually prays for you. prays for you. The Bible says he prays for those people that would believe in Jesus on account of their testimony. And so he starts off and he says, he spoke in these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. We don't know, we'll, we're gonna spend a little time at the garden today, even though John doesn't spend the time, the other ones do. And we don't know, it seems like there was a room in a garden, maybe one of his wealthy supporters said, hey, you can have this, we know Jesus didn't have the money. But the garden actually is a, a place, when you think garden, don't think uh, rose garden, don't think uh, you know, little petunias, think olive garden. It's a place where olive trees grew. As a matter of fact, they say that the trees that are there now, where they think this specific place was, that they are over 2,000 years old, which means those trees were actually there when this event took place. And so uh, John, what he does, John actually skims over the garden. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they spend a huge amount of time on it, and I'll tell you why here in a few minutes, but verse two says this. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, the place in the garden. Why? Because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So this was the place that Jesus would go, talk to his disciples, pray. It was a familiar place. They needed an inside betrayer. That's where Judas comes in. You know, they don't have Instagram. They don't have satellite imagery. They don't have a place where they can go, okay, that's where he is. So they had to have that inside person. That's where Judas comes in. But when it comes to the garden, all John says is they went to a garden. It's Matthew, Mark, and Luke that talk so much about what we call the Garden of Gethsemane. And sometimes if you're new to our church, you might like, what's the deal with four gospels? I mean, why is that? And here's the deal. There's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and there's a lot of overlap of material there. But then John comes along. He's the last gospel that was written, and he's about 90% unique in what he covers, And it's awesome of God to do that because what God does is God takes different perspectives and then says, hey, I want you to write this down and give a different perspective of the same event. So for example, if you watch the highlights of a college football game, you might watch the highlights on Fox and then watch a different set of highlights of the same game on ESPN. Same game, different highlights. That's kind of what's going on with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then John. John just says they went to a garden Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they dive, they do a deep dive into the garden. And so for about five minutes, six minutes, you don't have to turn there. Let me just, it'll be on the screen, but let me give you a couple of verses so we know what's going on, because he's gonna refer to it at the end of the John passage. Matthew 26, 36 says this. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, that's the garden. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Gethsemane is the place of crushing. It's the place where the olives were pressed, and Jesus knows his hour has come. Again, many times in the Gospels, the, the crowd would come and try to make Jesus king, and it, the phrase, My hour is not yet come, my hour is not yet come, my hour is not yet come. Now his hour has come. The reason that Jesus came has arrived, and so he goes into this garden with his 11 disciples at this point. And he says, I want you to pray with me. And then he goes a little bit further with his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and asks them to pray as well. Verse 37 says, and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, as James and John. Now this is a phrase you got to, we need to spend some time on. It says, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He began to be. In other words, when he got to the garden, something began to to make him sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death, remain here and watch with me. That phrase he began to be sorrowful and troubled is hugely important. The word uh, troubled and sorrowful there, when mixed together, it's the idea of horror, grief. One commentator said it would be like it would be like you coming to your home and discovering your whole family mutilated. It would be the grief and the horror, and you would be aghast. It would just take your breath away. He says, that's, that's what the words are describing. And which is, which is even more amazing, knowing that Jesus, when typically when he's facing difficult circumstances, he is like amazingly bold and courageous. It's like, if you go right before this passage, all the disciples are like, hey, boss, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem because they're ready to kill you there. And he's like, I must go to Jerusalem. My hour has come. I'm going to Jerusalem. And then right after this, he stares down Pilate right in the face with ultimate resolve. And yet here in the middle, he's in a garden and he's terrified and he's grieved and he's sorrowful. In other words, what he saw so troubled him, he actually said, I feel like I'm gonna die, which is amazing because John starts off the whole gospel, says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and then in verse three, it says everything that was made was made by the word. In other words, this is the creator God in a garden, scared, terrified, grieving and in horror. You're like, what in the world? What is going on? Look at verse 39. Verse 39. He says, and going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Mark's gospel actually includes in that prayer where he says, father, with you, all things are possible. In other words, God, I... Father, I know you can do this. I've seen you do it. I know you can do it. You've got the power to change this. I mean, if you're a parent and your little boy came up to you and said, Dad, Dad, it's gonna hurt so bad. Could you please change this? Please, can there be a different way this takes place? I mean, what dad in here would not sacrifice virtually everything to make sure that little boy didn't go through that pain. And yet Isaiah 53 says, listen to me, it says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And so when he says, let this cup pass from me, what's, what is he seeing? What's he, what's he talking about? What's he seeing? Now oftentimes we think it was just the physical pain of the crucifixion. What? Well, that was horrible have you ever noticed though the gospel writers actually never they never dig down deep into the actual physical part of the crucifixion it'll just have a phrase that says and they crucified him that has a lot to do with the trial it has a lot to do with the flogging but it just says and they crucified him and maybe the and then the words that that he said but it never details the physical anguish that he goes through on the cross we can find that out by doing study because they crucified other people It's because the physical, as bad as it was, was not what Jesus was looking at with horror. You're like, how do you know? Because the Hebrew word or the Hebrew metaphor, cup, is a picture throughout the scriptures of the wrath and the justice of God being poured out onto the evil and the wickedness of humanity. That's what it's used for. It's used for the justice and the wrath of God. Now listen, I understand that's like the last PC thing ever. That's not, but about 16% of all that Jesus is recorded as saying has something to do with judgment and wrath and God's righteous indignation at sin. And so when you look at it, uh, he's praying, God, if there is another way, uh, do you realize what he's saying? He's like, Father, if there is a plan B, if there's a plan B that I'm not aware of, if there's some other way for you to rescue and redeem humanity and make all things new. Father, if Oprah is right and all roads lead to heaven, If you can align your chakras or obey the 10 commandments or meditate and find nirvana or obey the five pillars and visit Mecca, if any of these ways are gonna work, if there's any other way, it seems like an awful waste of my blood to die on a cross tomorrow. Is there any other way? That's what he's saying. And this is the time where the father actually does not answer. And he says, but not my will, but yours be done. And by the way, there's not a person you meet today. And it doesn't even matter what their background is. It can be CNN, it can be Fox, you can be Buddhist, you can be a Christian, you can be an atheist, it doesn't matter. But as far as everybody looks out at humanity, looks out the window, looks on the television and knows something went wrong. I don't think anybody is looking out at what's going on in the world and like, man, we are killing it. I mean, this is amazing. We are batting a thousand. This is all going so well. And even if we can't agree on a solution, we agree there is a problem. Here's what you got to understand in the big picture. All believe something has gone wrong in every other worldview but the gospel. Every other worldview but the gospel says, I must do something to make it right. And the gospel comes along and says, it's not about what you can do to make it right. It's not about what you can do to please God. It's what he has done to rescue you. And here's what's hard is all of us by nature and nurture are wretched, black-hearted sinners. We just are. That's the way we were born. That's the way we were raised. And so understanding is like, man, this isn't fair. Why is, we'll, get, we'll hit this next week. But listen, fair is not a biblical value. You understand? You don't want fair. I don't want fair. You want fair? You don't want fair. You know what fair is? Fair is judgment and hell. That's what, that's what fair is. You're like, how can you say that? I'm a good person, I'm a good person. Compared to who, bro? Seriously, I mean, compared to your roommate in college, compared to the nightly news, you're a good person. Listen, here's here's the easiest way to think about it. Good people don't go to heaven. If I could tell you one thing, good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. Good people don't go to heaven. Why is that? Because there are no good people. There are no good people. We've all broken God's laws. We've broken God's heart. We've all rebelled. Heck, listen to me. If you don't think you've broken God's law, bro, you can't even keep your own law. I can't keep my own law. I mean, what are we in now? We're in August right now. Anybody in here say, yeah, I made 20 New Year's resolutions and I'm 20 for 20. We can't even keep our own laws. Nobody's lied to you more than you've lied to you. And so what happens is we are in rebellion against God. And that's why people are like, why can't God just forgive? What's the cross about? Why couldn't he just kind of say, man, just, just let it go. Here's the, here's the bottom line is God is holy. And if he were to just say, you know what, I'm gonna forget about the sin, then he would automatically then forfeit his justice. But because he is holy and just, all sin must be paid for. So to overlook the sin, overlook the sin would mean at his very character, he was unjust and unholy and he's not. That's why it's amazing when the book of Romans says, he is both the just and the justifier. He is both just, but then he comes alongside saying payment must be made and then he makes the payment. That's the gospel. And some of you are like, man, I want a, three, ways to, three ways to be a better parent or six ways to be a better husband or whatever. And that's important. But if you don't understand the first one and the 10,000 steps he took towards you, it'll never get at the root problem of, let's say, your marriage, which is selfishness to begin with. And so what happens is, uh, have you ever noticed this, a hey, Christian, have you ever noticed this, that so many of the epistles which is the teaching to the local churches from the ministry of Jesus. You can take the book of Ephesians. You can take the book of Romans. You can even take, you can take the book of Colossians. You can even take part, you can take a large section of the book of 1 Corinthians. Have you ever noticed how much time they spend rehearsing the gospel to the Christians? Why? Because Christians need to hear the gospel as much as non-Christians need to hear the gospel for different reasons. One is to get saved, but the other one is to say, "I'm gonna. This is how I can be a better husband. This is how I can be more generous in my community because Jesus is generous with me because Jesus sacrificed for me." And so, when you're walking through this, going back to the Gospel of John, here's the way the story goes. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers, we don't we don't know exactly how many band is up to six hundred. So six hundred or less, let's say. 400 for the word picture. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, they went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So it's late at night or early in the morning. The Romans and the Jewish leadership, they didn't like each other, but they had a common enemy in Jesus because Jesus had said he was God. And that means for the Jews, that was blasphemy. For the Romans, you were supposed to say Caesar's Lord. So they're like, okay, let's just pull the resources. And Romans... You enforce what the Jewish people were saying was blasphemy. Again, the enemy of my friend is my enemy. That's what's going on here. But then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, that's that's an amazing section right there. Then Jesus, knowing what would happen to him, knowing the trial, knowing the flogging, knowing the crucifixion, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Whom do you seek? Again, it sounds strange to us. You're like, hey, everybody knew where he was. Again, this is the days before. It's the days for you know, you could look up somebody's Facebook page and see a picture of him. This is before all of that. So they needed an inside guy who was Judas, who about this time, is it's not in this gospel, this is the time where he comes up and he kisses Jesus to identify this is Jesus. The crowds are gone, the threat is gone. I'm gonna go up there and we can get him when he's alone. So verse five says this, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth, which is actually Jesus the Nazarene. It's a pejorative term. It's like kind of with disdain. Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus said to them, I am he. We're gonna come back to that. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Now that's the picture. Judas has chosen which side he is on. He's revealed that he is not on team Jesus. He's gonna say something here in a few minutes. You're like, can you lose your salvation? You cannot lose your salvation, but you can fake it. And Judas was, Judas is not losing his salvation. Judas is revealing the fact that he was never on team Jesus. And so it says, he is standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Now, this is Bruce for a second over here because I'm not sure exactly how. So we got Bible right here, and this is Bruce right here. So I'm not 100% sure why they fell down. I'm not sure because it doesn't tell us. Some people say they fell down because when they identified it that that was Jesus, the guy they were coming for, They all kind of got in their defensive positions, you know, and they fell down that way. That seems hard to believe, especially in light of Jesus's response was when he said, I am he. I am he is the covenant name for God. It's the name that when Moses said, God, who do I tell the people sent me? And they said, "Tell tell them I am sent you. The everlasting God that is real in the past and the present and the future. Tell him that it's the, it's the same way when he said, I am the seven I am statements in the gospel of John, which by the way, this is once again, people are like, Jesus never claimed to be God. That is such bogus stuff. He did the gospel of John over and over and over again, seven times. He's like, I am this, I am the resurrection and the life. You don't say this stuff. Jesus said, like I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father, but by me. Again, I am the resurrection and the life. If you want to live, you believe in me. You don't say that kind of stuff. Because what he's saying is, listen, I am the God of the universe, and I'm either, your, your choices are liar, crazy man, or the Lord God of heaven and earth. Those are the choices. A good moral teacher, even the Jews and the Romans knew that was not a choice that was on the table. And so here's the way the story ends, and then we're gonna put some application normally when we're doing sermons when I'm doing a sermon three things I always want to do I want to explain what happened that's usually sometime we do it little by little we do all three of these and work through it this one's like that's the first part what we've been doing for about 15-20 minutes explain what happened It's kind of explanation. Then the second part is, okay, what does it mean now? That's usually like an illustration or something. Here's what it means now. And then here in a second, it's like, what does it mean to me personally? What do I, what's my response to the Bible today? And there's there's some of them we're gonna have. But here's the way the story ends, verse seven. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. He's always the shepherd, even to the very end. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Again, he, ne- he didn't lose Judas because he never had Judas. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, real quick. Um, in the gospel, God uses humans to write the words. So it's God tells them and shows them what to write. We talked about that last week, but you do see their personalities come through to some extent. And you see a little bit of that competitiveness between Peter and John. So for example, one place it's like, you know what, John goes out of his way to make sure that people know that he beats Peter to the empty tomb. It's kind of like competing in a hundred yard dash. And by the way, I outraced him. I mean, that's kind of part of it. And here, here you kind of see, I mean, how bad a shot do you have to be Okay, so Peter takes his sword out, and again, I'm a high justice person, so I like the justice movies where the bad guys get killed at the end. I've never, ever, 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 ever seen a guy take out a sword and then hit a guy's ear. I've never seen that move in MMA where you're like, man, I'm gonna go for the ear move. That's No, it's a bad shot is what's happening. Oh, so Peter's not just a bad fisherman, he's a bad swordsman because he takes the sword out, goes for the head, cuts off the ear, which by the way, one of the other gospel writers lets us know that what happened after the ear came off is Jesus reached down, and he, what he did is he took the ear and he placed it back on and healed it, which by, at that point, if that happens to you, okay, there's no indication he does this, but if his name is Malchus, but if that happens to you, I'm thinking to myself, uh, I'm switching teams, all right? Red Rover, Red Rover, please bid me to come over. I'm changing teams, regardless who's paying me, I'm coming over to Team Jesus, but he doesn't. So here's the way the story ends. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. You're a bad shot. Shall I not, and here's the part that kind of refers back to that opening scene in the garden we talked about. Shall I not drink the cup, this is rhetorical, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Okay, two points of application, two points of application. We're gonna do all the application at the end now. And it scares me more than anything else this scares me when you look back at what God's done in 14 years here, It's this scares me to death. It's, it's been awesome to watch God do all that God's done and all the different people we've been able to impact. But if you know, you got to make sure you're in the right chair. Here's what I mean by that. In the story, you've got three different kinds of people. In chair number one, you've got the soldiers and we don't know much about them. But the soldiers either were there because it was a job or maybe they did they did have some bad blood against Jesus. We don't know, but they were there. And this is a person that, you know what? Let's just call this person the doubter. And by the way, if you, and if you're here, you're watching online and you got some honest questions, God will go to great lengths to reveal himself to the honest doubter. If you're like, you know what? I wanna believe, just show me some evidence. Man, let us help you answer those questions. That's a good one. The disciples had a ton of questions. So if you've got questions, you are a good raw material to be a great disciple, which is different, by the way, than a dishonest doubter. A dishonest doubter says, you know what? I don't care what you show me, what evidence you show me, I will not believe. But let's just put these over here. These are the soldiers. That's that's what seat a few of you are in. Some of you are in. The seats that scare me to death are these two seats because in these two seats sit Judas and sit Peter. Up until this point, Judas and Peter, or up until a few hours before this point, they had been almost indistinguishable. Think about this. Up until a few hours before when Judas leaves the upper room, up until that point, they had the same preacher, heard the same sermons, they were in the same small group, 12, it's like the best small group ever. You had 12 people in that group being taught by the best teacher ever. They got to witness the miracles. They got to distribute the bread and the loaves. All of that was the same, but what this points out to us, listen, this is the scary part. The scary part is what this proves to us is, is just because you are an associate or associated with Jesus does not mean you're a follower of Jesus. Just because you were an associate of Jesus or associated with Jesus, that is different than the follower of Jesus. Because up until this point, if you were to say which one was on team Jesus and which one is not, almost everybody would have said Judas is on team Jesus. Because think about Judas. I mean, Judas is the guy that, he was the CFO. I mean, who's the CFO in your company? Somebody you trust, all right? You're not putting the shady guy as the CFO. You're putting the guy you trust as the CFO. So Judas is that guy. Judas is the guy that everybody looked at and said, man, that guy's trustworthy. He's got the pocket protector. He's got the calculator on his belt. He's got the, he's got the comb over. He's got all of that stuff. We can trust Judas. But think about Peter. Man, what a big mess up. I mean, isn't it? I mean, think about, that's all Peter's history. Peter's history, I mean, we could go this for 20 minutes. But if you look at Peter, Peter is messing up all the time, talking when he shouldn't talk. When Jesus is walking on the water, he's like, let me do it, let me do it. He takes like two steps, takes his eyes off Jesus, boom, he's down. I mean, Peter's the guy that almost messes up the Lord's Supper for us. Remember a couple weeks ago? I mean, what does he do? Jesus is like, hey, I got to wash your feet or I have no, you have no part with me, you have no share with me. And he's like, don't wash my feet, don't wash my feet. He's like, if you don't do it, I have no, you have no share with me. He's like, well, give me a bath then, give me a whole shower. It's like he almost messed up the whole thing. Or how about the time when Peter actually says the best confession of faith, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And like 10 verses later, Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. Or the granddaddy of them all is here in a second. In about one more chapter, Peter's going to deny Jesus. The last one is in front of a little teenage girl who couldn't even testify against him in a court of law if it ever got to that. So she was no threat at all. But what does he do? Hey, you're on team Jesus. I do not blankety blank know the man. Can you blow it any worse than that. So here's, here's what I wanna push at you church a little bit is when you look here, there's two men. There's two men in these chairs. On the outside, they did a lot of similar stuff. They both betrayed Jesus. They both denied Jesus. They actually both had regret over what they did. The Bible says Judas went and threw the coins back at the people who paid him, but then he went out and hung himself So they both had the regret, they both had the failure. One runs to Jesus and is changed, one runs from Jesus and hangs himself by his neck. One runs to him in repentance, one runs from him in shame. Judas knows a lot about Jesus, he just doesn't know Jesus. And what's scary, as I said earlier, is you can kind of look around and see all these people and songs being sung and people being baptized and all that kind of stuff and be associated with Jesus and yet not know Jesus at all. And you can look the part and you can play the part and you can sing the songs and you can go to connect group and you can be a pastor and you can be a deacon and you can be an usher and you can be all those things and not be a believer. you know one of the, the, the key distinction is have you surrendered to the Lordship of Christ? If you haven't, here's an interesting little vignette. Look at it sometime. When Jesus is saying, One of you will betray me at the supper, one of you will betray me, one of you will betray me. And all the other disciples are like, Could it be I? Could it be I? And they use the word master or Lord. Could it be I, Lord? Could it be I, Lord? That's what they're all saying. But when it gets to Judas, he's saying, like, Could it be I, rabbi, teacher? Not boss, not master. Example, virtuous, teacher. Somebody to kind of look out after. And so Judas represents the person that comes to church and puts the flag up high on the flagpole. I'm a Christ follower, but you still do what you want, when you want, with who you want, whenever you want. I'm not talking about perfection, but we are talking about direction. The question is, has there ever been a time when you surrendered to the Lordship of Christ? Now it's not hard, it's not complicated. We talk about it here all the time of ABC. Has there been a time when you admitted, admitted you're a sinner? You know what, I'm a sinner. It's not that you're a mistaker and you need a life coach, you're a sinner and you need a savior. It's like, God, I've sinned against you. B Be is believe that you believe that what he did on the cross somehow counted for you, and then see his confess. I confess, Jesus, you're the Lord. You're the master. You're the boss. I'm not the boss of me anymore. And by the way, before we get to the believers, just so you understand, that's something that you can do right in your seat with your eyes open and your head up. And right where you are online, just like, you know what, dear Jesus, dear Jesus, I'm a sinner. I believe that what you did on that cross, when you said it is finished, that counted for me. And I want to confess that you're the boss and I am not the boss. You're the master, I'm not the master. You call the shots, I don't call the shots. And right there, you just tell them the Bible says, you know what, his arm is not too short to save. And so, here's, uh, let me do this last one. This is the part kind of talking to us as a church congregationally. It's not just make sure you're in the right chair. I know we have different weeks. If we were to do a survey of what kind of week you had, it would be different in Franklin as it is in Arden, as it is in West Asheville, et cetera. Some of you would say, because you know, you, know you know what I love about our worship guys and ladies, you know what I love that they do or do not do instinctively? Instinctively, I don't think you've ever heard, if it has, it's been a decade, where they come up there and before the song is like, how are we feeling today, church? How are we feeling, how are we feeling? I'm not saying that's a terrible question. It's just an inappropriate question as you start to worship God. Because how you're feeling could be based on, you're like, man, I'm overwhelmed. The kids are driving me crazy. My marriage is in the toilet. I'm in the financial difficulty and I am super anxious. But if you're a Christ follower, what you do when you and I worship is we're like, yes, but the tomb is empty. The throne is occupied and God is good. And what I want to do for you is figure out, okay, when you come to church every Sunday, regardless, if you had a hellacious week, how do you make sure? Because here's, here's the point. Sometime, sometimes some of you all look at the guy next to you or the lady next to you, and they're kind of getting after it in worship, and maybe they're crying, and maybe their hands are up. I'm not saying every day is like that. But sometimes I know some of you looked at them, and you look at them when they're getting all into it, and you're like, what is wrong with you? What's wrong with you? I would just say, not not every Sunday is gonna be like that for you, but if that never happens, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Jesus says, listen, shall I not take the cup? Do you not understand? I'm the Passover lamb. And so here's what I wanna do before we try to respond on this one. If you don't have any other thing, just from this one text, jot down four quick things about why you can worship every single time. Number one, just the fact that he loves you. Just say, you know what, he loves me. He spoke the world into existence. He walked on the waves. He brought the dead people to life. Hebrews 12, though, says he endured the cross for the joy set before him. Just a little quick question. What joy? What joy? What was the joy set before him? He already had the approval of the Father. He already was the king of the universe. The joy set before him, what he didn't have before the cross that he has after the cross is what? It's you. It's you. So you can always say, you know what? If he is going through the darkest hour of his life, I know that he loves me even if I'm going through the darkest hour of my life. He hadn't abandoned me. He's not forsaken me. He loves me. He not only loves you, he cares for you. Years later, Peter would write an epistle and in chapter five, he says, cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Cast all your anxiety. Now, when we hear the word cast, Peter uses it saying, take that burden off of you and give it to the Lord. And so what that looks like properly is when you come down here and let's say you've got a prodigal or a marriage issue or you've got a financial issue and it is keeping you up at night, what what that looks like is you come up here and you're like, God, I've been praying for the prodigal for five years and I see nothing. But God, you said, you know what? Call to me in your day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will glorify me. God, that's what you said. You say, cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. So right now, I'm casting my prodigal daughter onto you. I can't make it change. You can make it change. You're a sovereign God of the universe. You're the one that came up out of the tomb. And so I am giving my burden to you. And then you get up and you go back to your seat. But you know what most of us do? Most of us... Golly. most of us, most of us, most of us, when we think about casting our burden, we think like fishing. We just like, we throw it to the Lord and then we reel it back in. Throw it to the Lord and then we just reel it back in. Throw it to the Lord, take another ambient and help us sleep. Throw it to the Lord, take another ambient, and help us sleep. Listen to me, he cares for you. Think of, think of this picture. Some of y'all have kids and they'll draw little pictures in the children's ministry. It's not good, they're not good. They're not good pictures, correct? I mean, anybody's, they're not good pictures, they're not. They're barely within the lines, they, hey daddy, look at this. You're like, oh sweetie, that's a great elephant. You're like, it's not an elephant, it's a zebra. I mean, you're like, it's just not good. Sometimes they'll give them to me and I love it when they give them to me and I've made the same mistake, oh that's a great. And you're like, horse, it's a horse, that's a great horse, great horse. You know who makes awesome pictures though? Seriously, you know who makes amazing pictures? Is Elsie Grace Frank. That's who makes amazing pictures. She's an artist. She's so talented. All her pictures are made. You know, I've got some of those on the refrigerator at home. I got them on the refrigerator at home. We're even going to frame one she did a couple of weeks ago. Put it in the frame. You know why? Because your kid's art is junk, but but Elsie Grace's is amazing. Seriously, what's the whole point? The only reason I don't like your kid's art is because that's not my kid. I don't know your kid. I don't know your kid. When I look at Elsie Grace's, like, I know her. I, yes, yes. So when God looks at you, you think, I I got a burden I don't know if he can take. Here's the way Jesus puts what Peter said. He said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest for your souls. Why? Because I am gentle and humble in heart. Isn't that amazing? So what kind of reception I'm gonna get? Two more real quick. Number one, or number three, he defines you. I love the way Peter is such a mess up and Jesus changes his name and changes the label. And just so you, if if you don't know this already, the world, you live in a world that's gonna put a label on you. You understand that, right? You and I live in a world that is always gonna wanna slap a label on you. And that label depends on a, 50 different things, depending on who's slapping the label on you. It's either based on your economic situation, your politics, your beauty, your marital status, your income level, your education level, your habits, your sin, your worst times in life. And we're gonna deal with those in a fall series and that might explain you, but it does not have to define you, right? Only Jesus gets to tell you who you are. You understand that? Only Jesus gets to tell you who you are. Somebody says, you're just an amalgamation of cells. Jesus says, you know what? You are an image bearer of Almighty God fearfully and wonderfully made. That's who you are, and if you're in Christ, you know what he says? He says, you are redeemed, you are a loved son, you are a beloved daughter. And so it doesn't matter what the other thing, you've gotta continually say, this is who God says I am. This is who God says I am. He defines you, and then lastly, he forgives you. Do you know the only difference, the difference between Judas and Peter is Peter finally understood the gospel. Here's, look at this progression. Early in ministry, when Peter messes up and he sees the holiness of God, he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. That's his reaction. And that's okay on the front end. Listen to me, Christian. If you never feel bad about your sin, that's called conviction. And if you're a Christian, that's not to pay you back. That's not to pay you back. That's not the angry God smacking you down. All the reason God had to be mad at you got put on Jesus on the cross. So now what did he do? He looks at you. That's why I was talking about 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So there's no wrath left. It's been put on Jesus. And so what do you and I do? What did Peter learn to do? Initially, he's like, man, I hate my sin. I gotta run away. I gotta run away. But then as he learns the gospel, you see him running to the Lord, even running to the empty tomb. I gotta get there quick. Or at the last chapter of the gospel of John. We'll look at on Labor Day. The resurrected Christ is on the shore and man, he's like, I gotta get out of this boat and I gotta get to Jesus as quick as I can. And honestly, that's where some of us are right now. He's like, you need to get to Jesus as quick as you can. You need to get to Jesus today as quick as you can. You walked in here, you didn't walk in here with a swagger, you walked in here with a limp. You know it, Jesus knows it. And he's like, here's the invitation. Cast all, that's why we talk, cast all your anxiety upon him. That's what we talk about, Come, sing, bring. For some of you you need to get down here. You don't have to go on the platform and struggle to get back up like I just did. You just need to come on down here and say, okay, this is no longer mine. I'm not gonna take it back again. This is yours. Don't know how to answer it. Not gonna tell you how to answer it. Marriage is in trouble. Finances are in trouble. Habits are in trouble. Emotions are, this is yours. Others of you just sing. And singing is a great way to worship just so you understand that. That song we sang earlier on number two, there's that line in there. Did you catch it where it said, he, he's, what does he say? It says, he stands by my side and stood in my place. Man, that is amazing. Just let that go around in the noggin. He stands by my side, but he stood in my place. There's the song we're gonna do, we're gonna end here, it's an old hymn called How Deep the Father's Love. And How Deep the Father's Love, what he says, there's, there's two places in there that always just slay me. The first one, it's like, he's at the cross, and he's like, I hear my mocking voice. He's like putting himself in the crowd. He's like, I hear, behold the man upon the cross. But then it says, like, I hear myself, first person, saying that. But then, I don't know if it's chorus or bridge or stanza or whatever, but here's where he says, he says, but this I know with all of my heart, his wounds his wounds have paid, his wounds have paid my ransom. All right, so I want you to stand to your feet. I'm gonna pray, and then you're either gonna be coming in prayer, folks, if you wanna pray with somebody or pray for somebody, if you're on the prayer team, you can come up here and pray, just even right now while I'm praying. And then, uh, so you'll be praying or singing. So Father, our prayer is right now, thanks for a just the sobering reality that that was my sin. That was the judgment that I deserved that you bore on the cross. Lord, help us be, just like this hymn writer says, behold, behold, behold the man upon the cross. Gotta pray for the next three or four minutes that that's what our church would do. We would behold the man upon the cross, either in repentance, salvation, intercession, pouring out the anxiety, the stuff that wears us down. Thank you for the invitation. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.